Hello, and welcome to Tuesdays at APA Chicago, our monthly after-hours lecture series held at APA's Burnham Conference Center. My name is David Morley. I'm a senior research associate at APA and host of Tuesdays at APA Chicago. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. Selected past programs are also available as podcasts, and you can see the APA website for additional details. Tonight we have with us Adam Simon and Dan Bolin from Ansel Glink in Vernon Hills, Illinois. Adam is a partner with Ansel Glink. His practice concentrates in the areas of economic development, land use, municipal law, special districts, public finance, real estate, and telecommunications. And he also participates in the firm's consulting practice. Dan is an attorney with Ansel Glink, representing public entities and property owners in land use, zoning litigation, real estate, property maintenance, and many other local government matters. The U.S. Constitution guarantees freedom of expression, freedom of religion, and the right to bear arms. Nevertheless, land uses that are dependent on these guarantees continue to court controversy in many communities. Whether sparked by chronic concerns over threats to community character or more acute debates related to public safety, many planners find themselves on the front lines of battles over contentious uses that have some claim on being constitutionally protected. Drawing from practice-based experience and lessons from case law, Adam and Dan are here tonight to discuss local regulatory issues related to strip clubs, churches, gun shops, and other land uses entangled with rights flowing from the First and Second Amendments of the U.S. Constitution. Please join me in welcoming Adam Simon and Dan Bolin. Thank you very much. As the introduction indicated, we're going to be talking about how the First and Second Amendment intersect with local land use regulations. With respect to the First Amendment, we'll be talking about the freedom of religion or the free exercise of religion and the counterpart to that, the Establishment Clause. We'll also be talking about freedom of speech, but not about oral speech. We'll be talking about expressive speech, conduct, that's considered to have communicative purpose. We'll also be talking a little bit later about the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms. With respect to the First Amendment, as we mentioned, we're going to talk about two of the touchstones, two of the main portions of the First Amendment, the freedom of speech, and the types of questions that we're going to try and answer during this presentation are, what does freedom of speech have to do with zoning, and what level of governmental control or limitations on land use are permitted over protected speech? With respect to freedom of religion or the free exercise of religion, to identify or try to help you identify whether religious land uses have special enhanced zoning rights, and if so, how do we have a land use plan or a land use regulation that acknowledges those rights? Now, it seems like you might be, you know, this is a lot to bite off in a short period of time, and so the presentation today is deliberately just a survey, and it's designed to help you identify red flags that you might come across in your own practice. It's not a great in-depth presentation, but it'll help you know when to ask questions and know when to ask for help and look for the warning signs for when you might be crossing into um, difficult territory with respect to the Constitution. Now, as it relates to freedom of expression and the First Amendment, we'll be talking first about what the scope of the protection is for um, for businesses that have First Amendment rights because of the expressive nature of their speech, of their conduct. Talk about the exception to that scope of protection for obscenity, and then we'll go into an overview of how regulations have to be structured in order to accommodate the rights that are granted by the First Amendment. So first we'll go into an overview of the scope of First Amendment protection. I want to emphasize again that the material we're reviewing today goes to expressive conduct. Sexually oriented businesses, also commonly known as adult uses, include strip clubs, adult movie theaters, adult bookstores, um, retailers that sell sexually oriented wares, all fall into this category 
businesses or sexually oriented businesses. And the Supreme Court has held that the conduct that occurs in those um, businesses and occupations has an expressive meaning. It's not just words for words sake. They express a purpose. So therefore, they're protected by the First Amendment, provided they meet certain criteria. Where the portrayal of sex in art, literature, and scientific works um, exists, the fact that sex is portrayed is not alone sufficient reason to deny that material First Amendment protection. It is granted similar protection, but slightly less protection than traditional political speech that is really the core of the First Amendment. And that's been recognized by the Supreme Court and appellate courts across the country, especially here in Illinois. While sexually oriented expressive conduct is afforded protection by the First Amendment, it is not given the same degree of protection as traditional First Amendment speech, like political speech, um, which is really at the core of our freedoms. It's also important to recognize that the scope of protection given to this type of expressive conduct is identical under both Illinois law and federal law. While we're all familiar with the First Amendment under the U.S. Constitution, Illinois' Constitution also has its own independent right to free speech, and the Illinois Supreme Court has found that the degree of rigor that it will apply to review regulations that impose on First Amendment um, rights is the same under Illinois' protection as it is under federal law. And so in the course of your practice, if you come across examples of cases under federal law or Illinois law, you can apply them similarly. While sexually oriented conduct or um, expressive conduct is afforded protection, the U.S. Supreme Court has carved out an exception for obscenity. Obscenity is a very difficult concept to describe or to define, notwithstanding that the Supreme Court has done its best to try and describe how it would characterize the type of conduct which is um, going to be defined as obscenity. It is conduct that appeals to the prurient interest. In case you don't use prurient in your everyday life, prurient means it's shameful or morbid curiosity or interest in the sexual conduct. It's not for educational or scientific or artistic purposes. It's strictly conduct which appeals to someone's morbid or shameful curiosity in sex just for sex sake and doesn't express any redeeming scientific, artistic, or literary value. It must depict sexual conduct in a patently offensive way. So in case you're thinking of these criteria and can't think of any examples off the top of your head, you're not alone. Just Supreme Court famously once said that he knows obscenity when he sees it. Right in the um, case law where he said, I know it when I see it. It, He really can't do a much better job than that. Um, Unfortunately, many state criminal laws adopt these criteria to try and define what is a criminally obscene act. Um, Because of the difficulty in defining what obscenity is, it is something that's examined on a case-by-case basis. From a land use planning perspective, this is probably not something you'll come across in your practice unless there's a complaint that a business that is coming to your community, which is proposing to operate, is inherently obscene. But frankly, that's very, very unlikely. They're more likely just going to represent themselves as a run-of-the-mill sexually oriented business, which is entitled to the rights and privileges under the First Amendment. And then on a case-by-case basis, there might be a complaint to the police where the police have to examine whether or not there's obscenity going on or there's conduct that's going over the line within a normal sexually oriented business. So hopefully you won't have to deal with whether or not any conduct is obscene in your land use or planning practice, but it is important to recognize that there is a certain type of sexually oriented speech or expressive conduct that can cross the line. Now, in order to implement and draft rules that afford proper protection for the sexually oriented conduct, which is occurring in sexually oriented businesses or adult uses, you have to make sure that your rules are both content neutral and address 
only the secondary effects that arise from those businesses. What does that mean? Regulations and the manner in which you implement them must not be motivated by the content of the speaker's actions or the meaning behind the speaker's actions or the direct impact they have on the audience that they're addressed to. Instead, your regulations have to be directed at the secondary impacts that arise as a consequence of that business being in that location in the community. What are those types of secondary effects? Well, fortunately for us, those secondary effects are the traditional zoning characteristics that we look at on a day-to-day basis. They include what the impact is of the business on property values, whether or not the existence of that business will increase the amount of crime either on that property or nearby properties. Will it result in the diminishment of other commercial activity in the neighborhood of that business? And will the operation of that business have health impacts? Will it result in higher incidence of sexually transmitted diseases? So if the motivation for your regulation is to abate the negative consequences, the negative secondary effects of the business, and is not motivated by the very fact that there's sexually oriented conduct going on, and you can demonstrate that through the foundation that you've set in your ordinance for why you're establishing the rule, you're going to have a greater um, presumption of validity. In addition to being content neutral and being aimed at the secondary effects, your ordinance must not or should not, on its face, totally exclude all sexually oriented businesses. There really aren't many cases out there which support the proposition that a community can completely exclude all sexually oriented businesses. Um, There is a theoretical community out there where it's allowed. Um, There really isn't a great example to point to where it's been authorized at least absent a statewide regulatory scheme um, where you're enforcing simply a local scheme that's enforced only by the municipality. There isn't really a great example to describe for you where they've justified completely excluding all sexually oriented businesses from the community. So what does that mean? You have to provide reasonable alternate channels of communication. And that analysis is, again, determined on a case-by-case basis because you have to define what the market is for whether or not there are reasonable alternate opportunities to conduct a sexually oriented business in that market. Does that market mean within the boundaries of the municipality, which is enforcing the ordinance? Is it within the county in which the municipality is located? Is it within that state? Or is it more of a general region, like the Chicagoland region? Historically, these ordinances were examined on a municipality-by-municipality basis, and so the market was deemed to be within the confines of that community. As more and more states have adopted statewide regulatory schemes, the question of what the market is for whether or not there are reasonable alternative channels of communication or reasonable opportunities to conduct a sexually oriented has expanded. Because if you're enforcing a statewide scheme, it's more fair to examine more of a regional market instead of just limited to a municipality. Certainly, there are some areas that are more compatible with a sexually oriented business and will be better able to adapt to the secondary effects that result from having that type of business located there. So depending on whether or not you're implementing a statewide ban on having sexually oriented business within a thousand feet of a church or if you're enforcing a local regulation that says that no two adult uses can be within a thousand feet of each other depending on the posture of the law that you're enforcing will depend on what market you're examining um, for whether or not there's alternate channels of communication available the case law has started to slide um, more deferentially to a larger market especially if you're examining a regulation in a smaller community, which is predominantly a bedroom community and doesn't have a large commercial or industrial district. Um, But again, that examination has to be done on a case-by-case basis. Now that we understand the scope of the protection and how you have to design your rules to make sure that you afford the proper protection to sexually oriented businesses, we'll describe the available types of techniques you can apply in the zoning code 
to um, regulate them in a legal way. I mentioned briefly just a second ago that there are more statutory schemes popping up around the country. Illinois actually has a statute that applies in both the municipal code and the county's code, which provides that a it is prohibited to locate an adult entertainment facility within a, within a thousand feet of the boundaries of a property containing a school, daycare center, a cemetery, a park, a forest preserve, a public housing complex, and a place of religious worship. And in counties, in the unincorporated portion of the county, the distribution is 3,000 feet apart. So again, in the course of enforcing this rule, which, in, by the way, is located under the police powers section of the municipal code and the county's code, it's not found in the zoning or planning section of the municipal code. It's a police law. Um, it is important for you to recognize that this might be granted more deference um, than a local regulation in terms of whether or not there's ample alternative opportunities to conduct a sexually oriented business. Um, in case you're in DeKalb County or in the non-Chicago portion of Cook County, those dispersal rules expand to one mile within the property boundaries of any of those sensitive uses. Certainly Cook County and DuPage County are the two most dense um, counties in the state. They're the two most populous. And so the General Assembly found it warranted to expand the dispersal rules because the likelihood that the secondary effects would trickle away from the property are enhanced when property is more densely developed. Even though statewide regulations are granted more deference than local rules, both of them must be implemented in a way that protects vested rights. If a church is built in a location that if a new church is built in a location that comes within a thousand feet of an existing adult use business, you can't arbitrarily tell them to close down immediately. In a minute, we'll talk about one of the tools you can use to um, remedy that problem, but you should be aware that even if the authority that you're, the law that you're enforcing, the authority you're granted is found in state law, you cannot enforce those regulations in a way that divests someone of their vested rights, especially where there's currently operating business. We've discussed the distribution of buffer zones. Um, just like the state law has those 1,000-foot barriers or 1,000-foot buffer zones or 3,000-foot buffer zones, local regulations are also authorized to have those types of regulations. Those are found to have been content neutral and directed at the secondary effects. So you can feel confident if your rules have those types of buffer zones or if you're drafting a new ordinance and wish to incorporate those into your um, regulations, you can have confidence that those types of limitations, um, at least facially, um, have been found to be constitutional. Again, we have to examine on a case-by-case -case basis whether the de facto application of those rules ends up resulting in there being no opportunity to do it at all, um, and then that's a secondary analysis. If you come into a situation where the application of your code will cause an existing ongoing business to be required to operation, it's important for your ordinances to contain an amortization provision. An amortization provision, quickly, is a provision which grants the owner the opportunity to recover his, ex his reasonable expectation-backed investment in the property. Um, there are adult use cases which have approved amortization provisions as short as six months where the city has proven that there are ample places they can relocate to within the community. Um, it is important to recognize, however, that if the difficulty the business has in relocating is simply the result of economic factors, that is not a burden placed on them by the regulation. That's simply a burden placed on them by the economic conditions prevailing at that time. If there are, by the application of the ordinance, 16 potential parcels of land where they can operate a business legally, and they have to relocate to one of those 16 parcels, but they happen not to be for sale at that particular time, that's not the municipality's fault. Courts have held that that is not something that the municipality has to be answerable for. And so, so long as the 
ordinance or regulation recognizes that there are alternate available parcels of land that they can compete with on equal footing with other commercial operations, um, that is sufficient to satisfy the standards of the First Amendment. Many adult use regulations also require them to obtain a special use permit. If your ordinances contain a requirement that the adult use business obtain a special use permit before they operate, it's important to recognize that First Amendment um, case law has recognized this to potentially be a prior restraint or a governmental condition prior to exercising one of your um, fundamental rights. Very succinctly, I will tell you that it has been found that the st underlying structure, the underlying um, principles of Illinois zoning law have a favorable application in this case because Illinois allows for a direct appeal for zoning applicants who feel like they have been delayed um, indiscriminately and haven't been able to get a final decision on their application. Cases have held that a zoning applicant who is subject to delay may appeal directly under a common law writ of certiorari and go directly to court without having a final decision made by the local zoning body. Furthermore, that also provides um, a prompt, prompt opportunity for judicial review. It is important to also re remember that in adopting rules that require a special use, that your ordinances contain very strict time limits on how long it takes to get from the application phase to the final decision. If your ordinances are open-ended and would allow potentially an indefinite delay between when they file an applicant files an application for an adult use business and the final decision being rendered, that would be characterized as a prior restraint and would be frowned upon by courts and probably overturned. Um, there has to be very specific timetables provided for in your ordinance to say the hearing must occur within a fixed period of time after the application is complete. And once the hearing is commenced, the final decision has to occur within a fixed period of time of after the hearing commencing. Um, there was a case that held that a scheme which provided that the hearing shall commence within 30 days after the application being complete and the decision will be rendered within 30 days after the hearing being adjourned was insufficient because there was no inherent limitation on how long the hearing could last. And so the court found that that was a prior restraint because it allowed the zoning board or the governing body to indefinitely delay and postpone the conduct of the hearing and extend it and continue it as a de facto denial without actually rendering a decision. In addition to zoning rights, um, municipalities and counties also have the ability to license adult uses. Um, I will tell you that the degree of protection for adult uses under licensing schemes is very similar to what it is for zoning regulations. They have to be aimed at the secondary effects. However, Many communities find it advantageous to have both zoning regulations and licensing schemes because zoning regulates where it goes. The licensing, the licensing scheme is aimed at how it, the business is conducted within the four walls of the business. The types of regulations that are found in licensing schemes that regulate adult uses include hours of operation, proximity between the performers and the audience, and even the structural design of the business. These have all been found to be content-neutral regulations aimed at minimizing the secondary effects of the business there. The hours, hours of operation are obviously aimed at limiting the potential for crime and whether or not it has a deleterious effect on the conduct of com commerce in that area. The proximity of performers to the audience goes to eliminating the risk of sexually transmitted disease or sexual crimes. And furthermore, even the structural design of the building. If you're in a adult use nightclub, there are even rules that have been upheld that held there can be no doors to any rooms. There can be no privacy anywhere in the club to avoid the risk of any sexually transmitted disease or any type of sexual crime occurring. And these types of rules have been upheld as being aimed at the secondary effects. So if you're interested in further limiting the manner in which sexually oriented businesses operate, in addition to where they are located, 
there is authority for you to license them and further control um, how they operate as where well as where they operate. With that, we're going to take a right turn and go to religion. There are two principal laws under federal and state law that govern the intersection of the freedom of religion or the free exercise of religion and zoning rules. Under federal law, there's the Religious Land Use Institutionalized Persons Act, or RELUPA, commonly. And under state law, there's the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. We'll go through these laws very quickly, just to, again, highlight what the um, scope of the protection is and to help you recognize what type of test will be applied if you're ever dragged to court for being alleged to have violated either of these laws. Under RELUPA, there are three potential tests or three potential claims that a land use applicant can charge a community has violated. There's the substantial burden test, the discrimination test, and the exclusion test. First, with respect to the substantial burden test, the law states that a government shall not impose or implement a land use regulation that imposes a substantial burden on the religious exercise of a person or religious assembly unless the government can demonstrate that the regulation is in furtherance of a compelling governmental interest and the regulation is the least restrictive means of furthering that compelling interest. Once again, I want to emphasize, if a regulation places a substantial burden on the exercise of religion or the rights of a religious assembly, it must be in furtherance of a compelling governmental interest and it must be the least restrictive means of furthering that interest. That test which I've described is commonly known in judicial lingo as strict scrutiny. So if your regulation places a substantial burden on a religious use, you have to pass strict scrutiny. And under strict scrutiny, you are not given the presumption of validity, unfortunately. You have a high burden to demonstrate to the court that your regulations um, are in furtherance of a compelling governmental interest, not a substantial interest, a compelling interest, something that's very central to the um, health, safety, and welfare of your community. In these types of cases, the plaintiff has to demonstrate first that there is an actual burden on the religious exercise, and they also have to demonstrate that it, isn't, that it, it is, in fact, a land use regulation causing that burden. It is not the exercise of condemnation. Condemnation is not a land use regulation. So if a community is condemning private property that was used for religious purposes, that does not fall within the scope of RELUPA. If a community is engaging in a public works project and the conduct of that project has permanent or temporary ill effects on the exercise of religion or the use of a property for religious assembly, that public works project does not fall within the scope of RELUPA. It must be a land use regulation which is the direct proximate cause of the burden on the free exercise of religion. So the first, the plaintiff has the burden to show that it is the regulation which is the moving cause for that burden. If they meet that burden, then it turns over to the municipality to demonstrate that their regulation is in furtherance of a compelling governmental interest and is the least restrictive means of serving that interest and that it can pass strict scrutiny. Next, the discrimination test. This seems fairly straightforward. No government shall impose or implement a land use regulation that discriminates against any assembly or institution on the basis of religion or the religious denomination. Um, a little bit less clear is a second part of that test called the equal terms test. Here it says that no government shall impose or implement a land use regulation that treats a religious assembly on less than equal terms with a secular assembly or institution. What this means is you have all, all different types of uses that are considered assembly uses or uses which are designed to aggregate large groups of people on a single piece of property. Community centers, village halls, schools, um, performing arts venues, movie theaters. These are all, place all types of businesses or uses that assemble large groups of people on a small area of land. And ideally, you might consider them all to have similar zoning effects on neighboring properties. And so 
to the degree that you place limitations and conditions on the operation of any type of secular assembly use, you have to apply those rules similarly to religious assembly uses and treat them on equal terms. And finally, there's the exclusion test. Again, this is fairly straightforward. Your regulations may not totally exclude religious assemblies from the jurisdiction, and it may not place unreasonable limitations on religious assemblies. That doesn't require any further explanation. Under RELUPA, there is no monetary relief that is available. However, it is important to remember that if you are in a RELUPA case, there's probably a companion cause of action for violation of the First Amendment, and that is one of your civil rights. And so if there's a First Amendment case that falls within 1983 and 1988 of the Civil Rights Act, and under that rule, you are entitled to get attorney's fees if you're the prevailing party. So while RELUPA itself doesn't provide for monetary remedies, typically the companion cases that go along with that would provide potential for um, paying the prevailing party's attorney's fees if you are the losing party. But RELUPA itself only is a only allows for injunctive relief. And to help you understand how this law is implemented in real life, there's a case that recently arose out in DuPage County called the Earshot Learning Center versus the County of DuPage. This was a decision that was reported by the, appellate, by the Northern District of Illinois just earlier this year. Um, there were claims for violation of the equal terms test and the substantial burden test, as well as the discrimination test. On the equal terms test, the court found that when you're comparing the religious use to a secular use, the, compar- the comparable use must not differ with the religious, proposed religious assembly with respect to any accepted zoning criteria. The proponent of the use, the plaintiff, must demonstrate the exclusion of any other potential zoning criteria as a basis for a distinction in how you treat them. So they have to be identical in terms of what zoning district they're in, whether or not they have similar setbacks, um, what the neighboring properties are. You have to exclude any other rational zoning basis for why they might be treated differently. Under the substantial burden test, the court also found the county did not fail this test. They said that the regulation, again, must be the direct, primary, and fundamental cause for the burden on the exercise of religion. This narrowly construes this test. You do not need to show a lack of alternative properties to meet the substantial burden test. Um, All you have to prove is that the burden applies to the property on which the application is relevant to. Um, That is distinct from the sexually oriented businesses that we talked about earlier, at least for religious assemblies. You do not have to demonstrate that there's a lack of alternative properties available to conduct your religious assembly. Finally, while the county prevailed on those first two tests, they did lose on the discrimination test because the court found in examining the record on appeal that all the evidence presented in the case failed to demonstrate why this prospective use couldn't meet the standards for a special use under the DuPage County Code. The fact that the county issued the denial against the manifest weight of the evidence was patent evidence of discriminatory intent. And so the court overturned the decision on the basis of discrimination because um, they couldn't point to enough evidence presented in the record or on appeal um, to demonstrate why this use wouldn't qualify as a special use on the property where it was proposed to be located. Moving on to state law, the Religious, the religious Freedom Restoration Act um, essentially applies the substantial burden test from RELUPA. It doesn't contain the equal terms test or the discrimination test. It is fundamentally addressing whether or not the government regulation places a substantial burden on a person's exercise of religion. Um, this is not limited to land use regulations. This applies to any type of governmental condition or regulation. Um, So this is a little bit broader than RELUPA because it applies to any type of condition or test that the government applies. Um, But the analysis is very similar to the substantial burden test under RELUPA. Again, it provides for injunctive relief. 
it also does expressly incorporate the opportunity to obtain attorney's fees if um, the plaintiff is substantially prevails on the case. Also contains a home rule preemption. Finally, one last word on religion. Um, there's a lot of confusion out there as to what the difference is between government regulation of speech versus governmental speech. When a government elects to speak for itself, it is not subject to the regulations of the First Amendment. The First Amendment is only triggered where the government creates a forum to provide the public an opportunity to speak for itself and discriminately applies the rules for who's allowed to say what in that forum. And so many times around the holidays, you'll hear about these cases where the government elects on its own motivation to erect a religious display or a holiday display. And someone complains that it doesn't contain sufficient diversity of religious symbols. Here, the government is the one choosing what to say or what not to say by what symbols it places in the display. It is not creating an opportunity for the public to put their own symbols out there and telling anyone they can't put their symbol out and discriminate against any particular religion or religious denomination. So while this isn't directly a land use regulation, it's important because it is related to the exercise of religion and the establishment clause. Um, please be clear that when the government speaks for itself, it does not trigger First Amendment protections, typically. And with that, I will move on to Dan, and he'll talk about the right to bear arms. Adam Simon, everybody. Very good. All right. The Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. What does it mean? And uh, what, why are we even talking about it? Until five years ago, there wasn't even a, a real Second Amendment. Until three years ago, there wasn't one that applied uh, to the states at all. Um, why, why do planners, of all people, care? Uh, because your zoning code might regulate all manner of gun-related land uses, be they gun shops, firing ranges, um, uh, the storage of guns on private property maybe. Um, and even if your zoning code doesn't uh, regulate these uses, uh, what's going to happen when that application for a tax amendment comes in uh, for a gun shop next to a school? Or um, say the application comes in for a home occupation uh, to sell guns out of uh, a person's home. Uh, does the Second Amendment require it? Um, and finally, uh, what does Illinois' new concealed carry law uh, mean for local governments? And just how many signs are they going to have to post saying that firearms are prohibited in different areas? Um, it's going to be a lot. But anyways, moving on. Um, so that's the Second Amendment. Um, it used to be a militia right. Um, uh, old 1939 case, U.S. v. Miller, often cited um, for years and years, decades and decades, saying that this is not an individual right to bear arms. It, uh, it's for militia, defense of the state, really. Um, but that all changed in 2008. Uh, the Supreme Court said the courts have overread Miller, uh, that it is an individual right. It's about self-defense, uh, uh, especially in the home. The, uh, let's see here, 2008, it was the, it was Heller, it was the District of Columbia had a handgun ban, and the United States Supreme Court struck it down. And then in McDonald versus the city of Chicago in 2010, the Supreme Court applied that Second Amendment right to the states when it struck down handgun bans in Chicago and Oak Park. The Supreme Court announced this new right, but they did not supply us with an analytical framework. Uh, how, how does this right work? What, how do you test new reg, uh, these gun regulations for local governments? Uh, but uh, the Seventh Circuit is where Illinois is. That is the, they have the leading test. It is a two-part test uh, that we use to test local gun regulations. First, you ask... Uh, does the effect does the regulation affect conduct within the scope of the Second Amendment right? 
that is the fundamental right to possess a handgun uh, for self-defense, especially in the home. If it burdens the core right, it gets what Adam was talking about, strict scrutiny. Uh, the gun regulation has to be the least restrictive means to accomplish a compelling state interest. It cannot burden the core right more than necessary and must actually accomplish the public safety goals of the of the community. What if it what if this regulation affects conduct outside the core right? If it's far enough outside, it could be what's called a presumptively lawful regulatory measure. When the Supreme Court announced the Second Amendment right, they said these kinds of gun laws are going to be okay. Uh, regulations that affect possession by, by felons, the mentally ill, sensitive plate uh, prohibit possession prohibitions in sensitive places, uh, conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms, and then prohibiting the carrying of dangerous and unusual weapons. Those are all still okay. But if what, what about everything in between? You've got the core right and then the presumptively lawful regulatory me- measures. If it's in between, uh, it, the law will get uh, not strict scrutiny not rational basis, where it's just the regulation only has to be reasonable. It'll get some form of heightened scrutiny or intermediate scrutiny that uh, means that the regulation must have a substantial relationship to an important government interest, probably uh, public safety. So this is kind of how it works. This is a picture that I drew uh, to explain it. Uh, It's a sliding scale. If the burden is substantial, you're at the core of the right, you're going to need a strong justification for your gun regulation. If, if the burden uh, is more towards the outside, uh, that's on the periphery of the Second Amendment right, it's going to be that much easier to justify. Th- this uh, test, uh, you'll be unsurprised, was borrowed from the the very stuff that Adam was talking about earlier. The, in the First Amendment context, pure speech that uh, gets strict scrutiny, things like political speech uh, gets the most protection. Uh, speech, expressive conduct, commercial speech gets a little bit less intermedi- intermediate scrutiny. And then there's things like obscenity, yelling fire in a theater, other things like that that only have to be reasonable, reasonable to be valid. And that, that's categories of unprotected speech, excuse me, unprotected speech. So let's see how this works. And the, the two-part test was kind of developed and applied in a city of Chicago case after the McDonald case in 2010. In 2011, the city of Chicago adopted a new gun ordinance. It said uh, everybody that wants a gun needs to get a gun permit, but you have to have one hour of of training at a a firing range. At the same time, the city banned all firing ranges in the city of Chicago. So you had to go someplace else to get your gun training. So is this regulation valid? First, the court asked, does it fall within the core Second Amendment right? No. It doesn't uh, directly affect or burden the uh, right to self-defense in the home. So if since it's outside the scope, what kind of scrutiny does it get? Uh, the firing range ban got intermediate or heightened, almost strict scrutiny, because it did affect possession. You needed to be able to uh, do this training in order to possess a gun in the city. Uh, the city had some pretty uh, lame justifications for this ordinance. They had some speculative security concerns about firing ranges. They actually argued that people might might not wash their hands and get lead on their hands. They had lead poisoning from firing ranges. The court struck this law down. So, moving on. Does the Second Amendment extend outside the home is the next question. Uh, in the first uh, Second Amendment cases of Heller and McDonald, the Second Amendment 
only applied to in the home. It, the facts of the case were bans uh, affecting possession in the home. So how far outside the home does the Second Amendment right extend? Uh, in a New York case, uh, Kachalski, New York, requires you to show proper cause in order to get a handgun permit. And that was okay, as the Second Circuit said, the Second Amendment right only applies inside the home. The Seventh Circuit disagreed and struck, struck down Illinois' last-in-the-nation ban on concealed guns. Uh, excuse me. The Seventh Circuit noted that Heller simply indicated the need for self-defense uh, was especially uh, important in the home. Therefore, right to bear arms implies a right to carry a loaded gun outside the home. So in applying the ban, uh, implying this right to the ban on concealed weapons outside the home, the court concluded the state failed to make a strong showing of empirical evidence to show that the gun ban was vital to public safety. Bans that focus on particular places or dangerous people could be upheld with less evidence. Uh, the court stayed that decision 180 days to allow the General Assembly to adopt a new law, and this is that new law. On July 9th, the Assembly adopted the first gun law in Illinois, allowing the carrying of concealed weapons. Two areas of interest for uh, planners and units of local government. The first is preemption. There is a wide range of gun regulations that are preempted under this law, the, relating to uh, licensing and regulation of handguns by FOID card and concealed carry licensees, uh, transportation by FOID card holders, and possession of or ownership of assault weapons. Those are going to be subjects of state regulation from now on. The second area of interest is prohibited areas. Where can concealed carry licensees uh, not bring a firearm? Firearms are not going to be allowed in a long list of places. Many of them are controlled by units of local government, schools, government buildings, uh, places of that nature. The law will require units of local government to post standardized four-inch by six-inch signs approved by Illinois State Police clearly and conspicuously at the entrance of each and every prohibited area. The law doesn't say who's going to be responsible for it. I expect the local governments will be responsible for the posting the signs in the areas they control. And one interesting one for local governments is the public gatherings requiring a local permit. So say uh, there's a, there is a uh, summer festival in your municipality. When the municipality issues the permit for that festival, any public ga- or the permittee uh, should be required to prohibit firearms at that event and post the required signs. So it would be a good idea for the local government to require the permittee uh, to undertake that responsibility uh, in, in that prohibited area. Licensees will also be permitted to carry and store a handgun in locked vehicles in parking lots outside most of these prohibited areas, and they may carry concealed uh, handguns along a public right-of-way that touches or crosses a prohibited area. So what does this mean for uh, planners and land-use folks? Uh, You should consider reviewing your uh, gun-related land-use laws. Uh, Illinois State Rifle Association and uh, NRA and other people have been emboldened and have promised to litigate these kinds of regulations. So if there's a gun regulation that on your books that completely bans possession, handgun possession in the home for self-defense, that's especially bad. Number one, it's probably preempted by state law now, 
Number two, it's probably unconstitutional because it'll be very difficult to marshal the kinds of evidence that you will need to satisfy strict scrutiny. Uh, pres uh, presumptively lawful regula regulations are probably okay. Conditions on commercial gun sales, restricting locations, hours, signs, things of that nature. And then everything in between gets intermediate scrutiny. You're going to need to find some evidence to support your re restrictions on firing ranges and, and things like that. Here's a couple more examples. So can zoning laws prohibit gun shops near schools? Probably. There's a new case, uh, Teixeira versus the County of Alameda in California. They had a zoning ordinance that prohibited firearm sales within 500 feet of sensitive places such as schools and residences. Gun shop owners were ultimately denied a, a permit conditional use permit, and they challenged the zoning ordinance based on the Second Amendment. The court found that this zoning ordinance was valid for a couple reasons, because it was two different kinds of presumptively lawful regulatory measures. First, it was a qualification on the commercial sale of arms, and second, it was a restriction on uh, gun sales and purchases near sensitive places. Let's see. The court noted that there is not a recognized right to sell guns. That's why the, there's only a right to possession for self-defense. And, and interestingly, it was not a complete ban. The fact that there was supported the validity of the ordinance. Uh, Adam talked about reasonable alternative avenues of communication under the First Amendment. You can kind of see how that might play under the Second Amendment, that it, there's places to uh, sell guns someplace in the community. And, and as for home occupations, I don't know, uh, planners sometimes get this question, and uh, community development people, the gun dealers require a federal firearms license to sell guns in Illinois, and the federal law requires a licensed dealer to conduct the business at the location set forth on the license, and they have to certify that the, the sale at that location is not prohibited by a state or local law. So it'll be uh, courts uh, have recognized, including the Sixth Circuit, that they will defer to local in interpretations of the home, occupa uh, home occupation ordinances in these kinds of cases, um, lots, uh, almost half, uh, more than half of uh, federal firearm licenses and sales uh, happen out of homes. So this will largely come down to what it says in your zoning ordinance. If there's a complete prohibition on commercial gun sales in residential areas, that's probably okay as a restriction a uh, reasonable restriction on commercial gun sales. Sales could take place elsewhere. Um, but if your ordinance uses a set of standards to measure uh, what a home occupation is allowed or not allowed, uh, that could get kind of tricky. I mean, the gun sale, the impacts of the gun sale for the, their parcel delivery, their traffic coming and going are probably not that great. And then, so if you want the city or village was interested in disqualifying this home application based on some special hazard presented by the proposed uh, federal firearms license, uh, you're probably going to have to uh, come up with some evidence showing why this use would be a special hazard. Um, and with that, I think we have time for questions. We do. We also want to remind everyone that if you're interested in getting it is available on the website for the firm at www.anselglink.com. If you go to the Resource Center at the website, you can get a copy of our presentation there as well. Thanks, guys. Let's have a round of applause for Dan and Adam.
And we do have time to take a few questions, so uh, just put your hand up and I'll come to you with the microphone so we can record your question for our podcast. I wanted to ask about that home occupation since it was the slide before. Um, I have had some clients um, very concerned because what happens with the when the Federal Bureau, when somebody asks for a license, and there are a lot of them out there operating these gun sales out of their homes, they do call the municipality, fortunately. I think it's the whatever, the Bureau, the FBI, or somebody calls the municipality and says, is this allowed in the residential district and every one of my clients it it has not been clear looking at their home occupation regulations so i guess you know leading to the next can a community um list this as a prohibited use or a prohibited home occupation in a residential district and the answer is yes i hope yes it, it's a uh I think it's a valid, presumptively lawful regulatory measure. Uh, the Supreme Court identified that restrictions on commercial gun sales, you, uh, you don't have to allow them everywhere. And you, you certainly don't have, and just because they're popular out of homes does not mean that your community has to allow them. Other communities prefer it that they take place uh, in, in out of homes, actually. Some communities find that the actual gun shops are more unsightly, more uh, perhaps more dangerous uh, than the sales that are happening with these unmarked packages in and out, in and out of homes. But yeah, if you wanted to prohibit them uh, in as a home occupation, I think that that would be a valid regulation. It wouldn't hurt to have evidence supporting this regulation in case of a challenge. To borrow from the analysis of the First Amendment uses that we described earlier, if you can find empirical evidence to show there are secondary effects from the sale of guns and you can put that in the preamble of your ordinance and create a record of what the motivation is to say that um, home occupation gun sales result in a higher incidence of crime nearby the home or nearby gun shops generally, um, and you want to adopt a regulation that's designed to deter the increase in um, crime, that is certainly one that's valid as being motivated by a secondary effect, and that would be something that we would encourage you to look at as a possible motivation to supplement the authority you have um, to adopt presumptively lawful regulations. Rich Roths. Uh, as planners were dragged, this is for Adam, were dragged into cases, usually by the corporate attorneys, uh, where an individual claims that their house is a church in order to uh, get out of paying property taxes. I know I was involved in one in DeKalb County many years ago care to make any comments on that in light of the other discussion you had? I'm almost going to call on my partner here to tell, tell, talk, talk about a case out of Lake Bluff where a home, a, a gentleman was occupying his home in a residential district and he claimed that it was a church and it should be tax exempt, but the zoning code didn't allow for a church in that district according to the, that size requirement. Um, and so he ended up being caught in a catch-22, whether or not he was a church or not a church, and if he was eligible to be tax-exempt or not tax-exempt. Um, assuming that's an, an assembly use, the zoning code is allowed to create rules that rationally relate to the impacts that arise from having an assembly use. And I think it's fair to extrapolate that an assembly use will have an un- disproportionate effect on the neighbors if it's on a single family lot as opposed to a larger lot um, because it is designed to accumulate dozens of people, tens, dozens of people for religious purposes. Um, and so if just through the simple application of traditional zoning principles, I think it's fair to say that 
a home occupation of a church probably is not something that you could probably regulate effectively. In terms of what the maximum occupancy would be? congregation were, and then we looked at means of ingress and egress, bathrooms, water, etc., and estimated what it would cost him to bring it up to code, and he decided it was cheaper to pay the taxes. Certainly that's also a good tool to use when you're dealing with a question of whether or not a home is um, overpopulated. Um, we, don't, don't rec- we don't recommend that people ad- um, enforce a arbitrary definition of family, we recommend that they enforce neutral objective rules from the property maintenance code to govern the maximum occupancy of residential buildings. I would expect that a landlord could still regulate um, handguns uh, or other firearms in his building, for instance, here at the APA offices. That's true. Um, I only really talked about the ones affecting uh, units of government, but a prohibited area is any private property owners can prohibit handguns on their own property if they post a sign. And uh, But lessees, like you're saying, they, they would have to ask their, their property owner. It, the, the law doesn't address uh, landlord-tenant relationships. What about landlords for places of public assembly like a shopping center or a swap meet even? The swap meet meet might need a local permit to operate unless it's a piece of property which is solely used for a swap meet. Many times these swap meets are put in parking lots of large malls, so they probably need a permit to have a special use, temporary special use, so that would fall under the regulation where they have to get a permit for that type of large assembly. Um, if it's the principal use of the property and there's no other use for it, um, then it doesn't seem to fall within the um, exempted areas under the law on first blush. I, th- I think it would be, too, not only the, the permit, if a permit was required under the public gathering prohibited area, but also the prohibited area uh, for the, the private property owner. If the owner of the mall doesn't want people to carrying there, they could post a, post a sign. If the... Uh, person that uh, is operating the swap meet doesn't doesn't want people carrying there they could post a sign yeah now if if we get to a situation with all these prohibited places and we have a lot of private property owners uh, stores etc malls etc theaters that that forbid uh, concealed carry are we not ineffectively then squelching the law and, and will we not be back in court uh, shortly uh, to deal with these things? And I, it, Do we really have a concealed carry law? People can't, can only walk up and down the street with their concealed weapon. Uh, if the question is, are we going to be back in court on this, the answer is yes. And, 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 and it's, they've already promised both sides that they're going to be litigating over this for a very long time. There's, I, I, I guess, whether it, are there too many prohibited areas that are we completely excluding it? There, New York has probably the strictest gun regulation in the country requiring you to show proper cause that you have a special right uh, need for self-defense uh, greater than that of the general public, and that was okay. Illinois is a little more forgiving in terms of where you can carry, actually. I've did, just uh, as, as, a, as a follow-up, the one that, that, that gets me, I'm not a car owner, all right, which means, and by the way, I don't have any intent of going out and buying a weapon. I have, do not feel the need for one. But, you know, if, if there's a law that says I should be able to, I want to be able to. And uh, since I don't own a car, I use public transit. Effectively, uh, I can, if I wanted a weapon, I could, you know, carry it up and down the street on my block, but that's about it. I can't go anywhere with it. So what use is that? 
Right. Public transit is a prohibited area. And uh, what, what's more, the law was designed for people to have a place to lock up their weapon. If they're going into a prohibited area, the law says, oh, that's your car. So if you don't have a car, you're kind of out of luck. The law allows for discrimination based on rational differences in classifications of people. The only types of discrimination which are prohibited are those based on suspect class classifications, race, religion, sex, sexual preference, those types of things. There are innumerable cases that have upheld reasonable classifications established by governments um, that discriminate between one group or another but not for an unconstitutional reason. So the question will arise whether or not it is reasonable to distinguish between car owners and bus riders and whether that's a reasonable classification. The courts would agree. <laughs> well, for the sake of time, let that be the final word. Let's have one more round of applause for our speakers. We'll stick around. On behalf of the American Planning Association, I want to thank Adam Simon and Dan Bolin for a thought-provoking and informative program on the First and Second Amendments. Thanks also to the many APA staff members who help make this program possible every month. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. I'm David Morley.